My guest today is Jeff Booth, and he is very concerned about war, a lot of blood, a lot of death, a revolution in the United States. Why? Because of the growing gap between the have and the have-nots, those that are getting money and they're getting richer and those that are getting poor, and why is it happening? Well, in his book, The Price of Tomorrow, which he wrote to try and avoid this war, he talks about how technology is making everything cheaper. But for some reason, we can't buy more of these cheaper goods, and the question is, why? The government is printing so much money, it's inflating prices on things, so we have to keep working more hours and more jobs to keep up, and this is going to cause a revolt. We talk about this in the interview. We also talk about will the US dollar ever get pegged back to gold, and we'll have a pre-1971 sort of financial policy, or will we see a new Bretton Woods, and will the dollar still be the global reserve currency, or will the Chinese yuan take over or something else? We also speculate about will the dollar ever get pegged to Bitcoin to build trust back in our financial systems. We look at all this stuff through financial lens, but also a political one. How are political parties using this populism, this rage is split between the wealthy and the poor to, for their advantage to consolidate power? And can that be undone? Again, the interview is a very good one. We talk about all things fiscal policy, Bitcoin, war, revolutions, politics, power, and money. Enjoy this interview with Jeff Booth, author of The Price of Tomorrow, also built his own company to half billion dollars in market value before writing the book. Enjoy the interview. All right, guys, my guest today is Jeff Booth. He has recently, maybe not recently, actually, it's, it's a you know, couple months now, but came out with a book called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Technology is Key to an Abundant Future. And I was introduced to Jeff uh, by my friend Preston Pish, who recommended his book. I dive in and I was just thrilled when I read the bio and said, oh, this guy's not actually an author. He actually built a tech company called Build Direct, built it to about a half billion dollar market cap over a 19-year period and a whole heck of a lot of pivots, which we'll dive into. Jeff, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. So we'll ease into the book, but instead of starting with like, you know, what do you do and what's the book about? I just want to pose a very urgent question to you, uh, which is the following. Uh, when the election was happening in 2016, I was seeing so many tweets by many politicians, including Donald Trump, articulating that they're going to be tough on jobs and keeping unemployment really low. And if GM moves out of Ohio, GM's going to get the consequences. Even if the plant in Mexico is cheaper and produces cheaper cards for U.S. consumers, they're going to keep the jobs here. Why are politicians and government so obsessed with keeping unemployment low and you know high-paying jobs around? <laughs> um, that, that's a loaded question, but the, the only real scarcity is high-paying jobs. Uh, the technology is creating abundance everywhere. Um, and every single government around the world is, is worried about the destruction of jobs, which is a logical consequence of technology. Um, and, and, and going back and, and creating coal jobs is not going to solve that problem. Right. So, so, so it's not just Trump, it's every politician. It's, uh, it's every politician around the globe that is worried about the same thing. Technology destroys jobs. How do we, how do we, how do we keep them? How do we keep them? Is that the right question to be asking? Well, so you've, you've fortunately read the book. Um, I think we're asking the wrong question, right? So, uh, so, so if technology is deflationary, and it makes things more uh, more efficient. Maybe the question should be: How do we rebuild society so we don't need as many? Um, but but that question it, it breaks people, 
right? Because it's because we haven't we haven't grown up in that society. We th- we it's always been a growth society. Get more, try, try to uh, you earn more over time. You pay back your debt with future dollars that were deflated were inflated away, um, and it's worked for a long time. And and so we can't see that we're caught in this loop, and we're and, and we're asking the wrong question. You you said uh, something to kind of that I'm not an author. I didn't write the book. I I don't need money from book sales. I don't um the. I wrote the book because I care about our, my kids. I wrote the book because I care about the future world that we all grow up in, uh, and 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 solely for that that, uh, that reason. But but entrepreneurs have an advantage, right? Entrepreneurs see the way that something should work versus the way it works now, and they build to that. And and a lot of times those entrepreneurs are chastised early on, right? Because they because they're competing against a system that doesn't work that way, and they're trying to create a new system. So, so instead of starting this from an economist point of view or anything else, inside the existing system, if you step up above that and you look at it with fresh eyes, uh, you could see you could see potentially see something that no one else saw, right? And so. So the, uh, I, I think entrepreneurs always create the new world, right? And, and so from, from seeing, that, uh, see, uh, seeing that impact across a larger spectrum of a world that we're all caught in a loop of higher and higher paying jobs, which we, we can clearly tell there's not going to be net global job gain globally, right, through, through what's happening with technology. If if that's true, if you accept that that, that that's true, true, uh, true that there's not going to be net global job gain, then the existing system that we grew up in can't continue. What does "can't continue" mean? When does the world get shocked into the moment when they say, "Oh, it, it is broken"? We we realize it's broken. Well, all the evidence is there already. Right, it's been. You, you talk about the the polarization uh, in political circles all over the globe. That's a that's a consequence of trying to retain a system that doesn't work the way that it, it should, the way we grew up with. And so, so over 185 trillion dollars has been added to global debt in the last 20 years to uh, to produce 46 trillion dollars of economic return in GDP. Over the uh, uh, per, that's that's per year, but the growth of debt is exploding, and and when you grow debt that at that rate, all you're really doing is pulling forward demand, that then you have to pay for tomorrow, right? So you're pulling forward demand, and you're having to increase the amount of debt with each different step, against against prices that want to go down because of technology jobs that want to go down because of technology and 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 when and when you do that you you're caught in an existing so you 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 get caught in an existing trap asset prices go up uh, those same asset prices that you're forcing to go up because of that creation of debt then you have to bail out the people on the other side through ubi or something else because you the prices of the assets are unnaturally high and people can't pay for them so you're wasting money all over the place, and 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 you you, you said um, uh, the, the signposts are everywhere, 
it's it's actually surprising that that, that people can't see uh, can't see the signposts because we don't live. It, it, maybe a simpler question is this: If the global economy worked, would we have uh, would we have to create 180? Would we have to juice it with 185 trillion dollars of debt? That's before the crisis, right? That's. Um, and I think, and we're yeah. just for context, we're recording here on April 20, Monday, April twenty seventh. Yeah, and and so so now, so now you have now worldwide you have two hundred and fifty trillion dollars. This is at the end of two thousand nineteen. Two hundred fifty trillion dollars supporting a global economy of eighty trillion. That was when I wrote the book, and now now what is it? Like, take a guess on what the global global debt will be against what the global economy is, right? You've just exploded the debt and the global economy is, is, is lower. That debt, just the debt alone, is a drag on future growth, right? Because you have to pay it back. Now, the only way it doesn't become a drag on future gro- growth and it becomes hyperinflationary is when, logically, governments destroy their currencies because they can't pay back the debt. But 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 assuming they have to pay back the debt, somebody has to pay back. Taxes need to go up, and taxes going up will will slow slow growth further, and we'll get get more deflation. Four dollars of since two thousand, four dollars of debt used to drive a dollar new of global GDP. When you take into account Moore's law and the advances in the technology over the next twenty years, so if we have another interview in twenty forty. Will the ratio stay the same or get worse? In other words, worst case, or no, sorry, best case, can governments around the world print $4 to get a dollar note of GDP, you know, in 2040? So we're doing 500 trillion in debt and 160 trillion in global GDP. Well, that's the question right now, right? So, 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 so since the book came out and COVID, let's, let's look at a micro example, right? Zoom going from 10 million users, the, what we're on right now, right? going from 10 million users to 300 million users in a month and a half, right? Will, will the 290, incremental, uh, 290 million incremental users all go back to their commercial real estate? I think the answer is obviously no, right? Some will go back to commercial real estate, but everyone that doesn't reduces the value of commercial real estate. Um, and reduces GDP as a function of all of this coming down. And then those people aren't eating out as in restaurants near the commercial real estate as much and everything else. So all that's happened is with tech, with COVID is we've accelerated the process of technology change. Right. And that, and that, and that takes away a whole bunch of jobs faster. And so the feedback loop of that. So the answer to your question about, what will governments need to do to replace all of that demand? It's it, it's it's actually unquantifiable. At some point, how many trillions of dollars breaks a system? How, at what point do you say you're pushing on a string um, and this isn't working anymore? Um, and and it, and so, do you double? Do you triple that debt number? Do you quadruple that debt number? It actually doesn't matter because we're already so far past the point of rescue. That that, that 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 more and more debt is going to be ineffective. 
So Jeff, the ultimate thing I'm trying to work towards is what is the moment where we realize this needs to be fixed, where people aren't being killed and there's blood on the streets in the form of a revolt or the haves against the have-nots? Because here's what I keep coming back to. Now, this is true of all politicians around the world, but I'm most familiar with the U.S., so I'm going to stick there. When you look at the net worth of cabinet of the current cabinet members, okay, none of them are have-nots, right? Hundreds of millions, you know, sometimes billions worth of net worth. The system's working just fine for them. Many of them were entrepreneurs. They built massive companies, maybe in the financial space or other spaces, and they believe what they put in, the things they created, they earned, they made it. It feels very weird to try and take their wealth and redistribute you know, whether it's via UBI or some other form to the quote, have nots. For them, the system's working perfectly. So, so why would our lawmakers try and push any change? Um, change is coming no matter what. Um, and whether it's these lawmakers or the few for the, for the next law. And, and, and I think the question, the um, oppression question that you asked is, with, uh, does it come through revolt, revolt or revolution or is it orderly? I wrote the book, to hopefully convince enough people that we could we could create an orderly transition, right? An orderly transition with this much debt is going to be difficult. Um, uh, so let's go into that first. Um, and it's going to be difficult because if you allow deflation to happen, the debt in real terms explodes. Jeff, yeah. sorry. Because we didn't start off by like defining deflation, inflation, how you're thinking about it, this is a good moment for you. When you say let deflation happen, what does that actually mean? And then and some, please continue. Sure. So um, so deflation is when the value of your money gets more, more valuable. Goods and services go, uh, go down in price and your value of money goes up. Inflation is the opposite. Your value of money goes down, goods and services get more expensive. Um, it's not good or bad, it's different winners and losers, right? So in deflation, currency winner uh, savers are winners. They, they, uh, they can purchase more. With inflation, um, your asset, uh, holders of assets are winners. So we have, a, we, have a, we have a force that is bigger than any politician and it created a structural change and that force is technology. And, and, and that structural change is creating deflation everywhere. Yet policymakers are trying to drive inflation to, to protect against that de declining prices. And, it, and through that lens, that makes sense. Because if you allow deflation to happen, then, then the debt, if you already have too much debt, then the debt explodes in real terms and value, and you can never pay back the debt. So that's where we are in the world right now. And that's actually why it's logical, not bad politicians or anything else. It's logical. It's logical. Some are, some are bad, but it's logical to, uh, to try to protect that system. They don't know. In fact, many of them don't know they're, they're doing it. Um, it they, they grew up in a different world. Uh, I, I said this in a different uh, interview, but for, for now, I think, Pulling it to real-world examples and what happens in business gives people things they can hang on to. And so it, Blockbuster didn't have a bunch of dummies running Blockbuster, right? 9,000 stores. Um, all they missed is how fast technology was changing. When, when people talk now and they say, why didn't Blockbuster see forward 
and buy Netflix when they had the chance for $50 million. They, Netflix at $50 million was a bad business. It was, a, it was sending videos back and forth by email or by, by mail. By mail. Um, and so Blockbuster didn't see the risk in that. It was when technology changed the game and now you could download a movie, uh, movie like that. Blockbuster's advantage, 9,000 stores and all the attendant costs, turned into a disadvantage overnight. It was a noose hanging around their neck. So what they did in that, in that mode was add candy aisles to their stores. Right? It's, it's ludicrous. But to, to you're, not, you're not a gumball and Twizzler kind of guy, Jeff? <laughs> But, because, but but it's but it's ludicrous in retrospect. So, so when, you, when, you, when you think when you think, okay, we can solve this. We can so- solve this change in technology by adding candy aisles to our stores. But but now connect that analog to what we're talking about. That's what governments are doing. It's ludicrous. We can we can stop deflation from happening. We can stop the progress to technology by juicing our economies and adding, adding, adding more debt when we know it's not working. So it's, it's just as ludicrous, but we, but, but, but again, if you go back to it, the blockbuster executives weren't dummies. They were caught in a system that they couldn't see their way out of. And that seems like a plausible thing. And if you connect the dots there to the global system, all of our politicians grew up in that global system. So did we, and they're caught. They're they're caught in a system that they can't see the solution because they're caught, caught in that. So, so when you have, if, if, imagine a disorderly unwind, right? Imagine if today I know there's a lot of talk about the, the Fed and everything else reaching in and, and, and butchering capitalism, which they are, right? Um, but give them a choice. So what, is, what choice do they have right now? So if to, uh, two weeks ago, uh, $2.3 trillion went into um, essentially junk loans, but the junk loans against the commercial real estate and the, and, um, is really like subprime loans in, in 2008 is connected globally. So if you fa- if you let those fail and you write down commercial real estate to what it should be written down, and, and the real underlying price and the connections of around the whole entire capital system. Um, the entire system goes through a hard reset. So, so, so there's no good choices right now is what, because there's so much debt, uh, debt in the world. And instead of talking about first principles, what's actually happening that's created the structural change and how do we, how do we create a, 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 a an orderly unwind? instead of a disorderly, we, we keep reaching for the same, say, uh, say, policy responses that worked 20, 30 years ago. Jeff, taking a step back, I don't want to give the Fed an out. I appreciate your argument, which is they're stuck in a system. They grew up a certain way. I get that. But just last week, American Airlines CEO Doug Parker right, announced he was accepting a $4.1 billion grant, not a loan, a grant from the U.S. government 
of which 1.7 billion was a loan. So great, at least it'll get paid back, but with very little interest rates. Compare this to 2008 and TARP, which effectively, effectively that made the government money. Uh, when the banks paid these things back, there was about 3.6 billion in interest payments made plus the capital. That money went back. So that's great. At least it wasn't a net loss to taxpayers. This American Airlines deal, Okay, and they're also gonna apply for another 4.75 billion in extra loans. That's 10 billion out of the two trillion package CARE Act, right? That was passed, you know, I guess it was two, three weeks ago now at this point. That's 10 billion, there, of which a lot of it doesn't have to be paid back to the federal government. Why didn't the federal government say, listen, American Airlines CEO, if you're not gonna take our $4 billion fully as a loan and pay it back at a good interest rate, oh, and by the way, also give us some equity in the company, right, to some degree, or some control provisions, then fine, we're not gonna do a deal. You know, Warren Buffett's phone is not ringing off the hook right now because the government's saving all the companies that he'd go buy. American Airlines could have gotten, if the government passed, American Airlines would have ended up in the hands of someone like Warren Buffett, which I would argue is potentially a better situation for American taxpayers. So why hasn't that happened? So let's go back to 2008. The only reason that money was paid back is because so much debt went into the so much extra debt went into the system to keep artificially prices high and pull more forward demand. Otherwise, if you let the reset happen in two thousand eight um, happen, it, so so in, it, 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 the company that I founded in two thousand eight, we couldn't transfer our LCs across the world. What's so, an LC? Letter of credit. But, uh, banks on the other side of the ocean wouldn't accept them because the counterparty risk was too high. The, the financial system was grinding to a halt and the Fed stepped in and, and, and tried to save it. But by saving it, they artificially created winners um, and, they, and, they, and, and they artificially created losers. And let's go through, let's go through some of the winners, right? So, Go, go, you rewind to that time, and now we'll pr- uh, pr- uh, take it forward to answer qu- your question. But, but when you talk about Trump in that time, before he was elected, he is a winner out of that system because no asset prices could collapse to what the underlying value was, were, really was. And so all of the winner, all of the all of the people with assets, commercial real estate, real estate, everything else, you protected them from going down. And then rents went up and the whole bunch of people that got their pocket picked um, are wondering what happened. So if you had savings at that time and, and and, and your savings were destroyed in real value, right? And if you had assets at that time or debts that you just, Okay, we papered over it, and you kept and you kept on. You kept pretending the system still worked. Now, fast forward today. Today, we're in the exact same system with bigger numbers. And so, so American Airlines, some of the airlines. There's been a lot of talk about right now. Um, the why didn't these people save money? Right? Why didn't these these executives? Why didn't they save for a rainy day? And they're right, because when you have zero bound interest rates and you're sitting on cash and you know the government is destroying the value of cash, what are you going to do with that cash, right? You're going to, you're going to juice returns. And, and so we have a structural problem. And, and not addressing that structural problem 
is what's ha- it is what's happening. You're you're absolutely right. Should that happen? Should you bail out these the, these companies across the board? No, you shouldn't. Um, it, 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 you should let them all fail, and the people with cash will win. But if you if you actually pull this pull the string on what you just said, that is a hard reset for the global economy. A hard reset. Cash explodes in value. Right right now, the U.S. dollar is going up in value because governments around are all trying to get cash. (laughs) Every company is trying to get cash, and the U.S. currency underlies 80% of world trade. It's the only reason it's going up in value right now. It will go down on the other side uh, um, uh, uh, of this. But so, so the bailouts, and what industry isn't getting a bailout right now? The, the the Fed is the market, right? With the the stock market is an illusion um, uh, today. It's it's completely detached from reality of, of fundamentals. I guess the question I'm trying to push you on is: I get it work for someone like Trump in 08. I get, I get there's inflation targets, you know, I think, you know, we get how, you know, quantitative easing and money printing benefits some and not the others. Uh, but there's also right now that there is a lot of money sitting on the sideline. I mean, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett the other day on CNBC are basically saying, we're not getting any phone calls right now. And he goes, something is very wrong here. Why are two great business people and great investors not getting phone calls when a lot of big, big companies that they would love to get involved with, uh, are in trouble. And the reason is because people are looking at the government as the kind of idiot in the room that's going to save everybody, which ultimately comes back on the taxpayer. And I just feel like they're at some point, it's almost like the frog boiling in the, in the, in the, like there has to be some point where someone says, stop. And I'm trying to figure out what that breaking point is going to be. Well, so they've, they've gotten themselves into a trap that they can't get out of. It. They the assume the government or the corporate, the government fed all government central banks around the world. They're caught in, they're caught in a loop and they can't, and they are the market, right? There is no other, there is no free market right mm-hmm. now. A free market does what, so, so it does what you just said. People with cash, they wait for these times and they buy for pennies on the dollar. Um, and, and why people aren't holding cash or as much cash in, in a traditional market is because interest rates are, they're going negative. They're going mm-hmm. to be very negative. We don't live in a, we don't live in the world that we, we grew up in. Right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of, a lot of the talk about per, living in that world, that is not, that it's, it, 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 if you read what a lot of the economists are saying and everything else and how the, how this should work looking backwards at models that <laughs> were built for different times there you 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 keep getting back into this cycle you you just nailed it. technology is deflationary period if that is true right and it's getting exponentially more so then almost nothing else matters right so if, te- if look at your phone your phone is your smartphone is 13 years old. Everything on it, all the apps, it's all free, right? That same technology is moving into every single industry at blinding speed. Well, hold on, Jeff. You have to give uh, you have to give the delta here. You're going to age yourself a bit, but 1988, your first phone bill was for how much? 
right? My, my first phone cost $2,000. <laughs> yeah. And you, you put this my in the phone, my, my first phone bill cost about the same, right? And, <laughs> 12, 1200 bucks. Right? <laughs> and, and that was, and, and that was all it did is made phone calls. Right. Uh, and, and I thought that was fantastic. Look at your phone today. What it what it does and the power the power that you have in your phone. Phone. By the way, that twelve hundred dollars where uh, it um, in uh, in nineteen eighty eight was inflation adjusted. Do, do, the, the real value of those twelve hundred dollars, right? Think yeah. about what, what that. Uh, think about what that would be. So so what my phone costs me now for fifty dollars you could buy fifty dollars a month you could buy last year's phone um, and. Uh, and, and it has immense power, immense power. The, the amount of things that are on it from my guitar tuner to everything else that I don't buy anymore. Camera, I don't buy anymore. I don't, um, maps, ways, but that, that same technology is moving everywhere. Um, so guys, I want to, I want to use this moment to underscore in case you haven't caught on to Jeff's point when he says technology is deflationary, this is what he means. You know, things like the phone and advances that, you know, Moore's law is a piece of it, but there's other advances that allow us to get, you know, much cheaper utility today, more, more for our money today than we did back in 1988 in this phone example. That's Jeff, what you mean when you say technology is deflationary and that will always be true. Yes. So it, again, Every one of the companies I'm involved with is taking technology and and across its their businesses. Those, just about all those businesses right now are are setting records. They're it, it, it's it's a it's super exciting time. But if you add that up against instead of just one company, two companies, five companies, and everything else, if you add what's happening at the technology base layer across industry, it's impossible not to see how fast this is happening across the world. And that breaks our, that breaks our current economic model. So two follow-up questions on this. There are some people agreeing right now and there are some people watching disagreeing because they're thinking, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. My drug, the cost of this pill that I really need for my chemical imbalance that helps me balance out my copper has quadrupled in price over the past 10 years. There are certain areas where this deflationary nature of technology has not resulted in cheaper prices. Address that. Why hasn't that, why isn't this the case across all industries? Okay. Let's, let's go into, uh, and some are manipulated higher, right? Some are, uh, and, and, and right now, most are manipulated higher by the same function of currency that we're talking about, right? Why is real estate going up in value? Because you're in, you're, you're pulling, everybody's trying to take their money and put it in a store of value that is, that, that, that doesn't get eroded by, by, uh, by inflation. So you take your money out of there and you, you put it in a house. And if, if China is going to devalue the currency, which they will devalue the currency, right? Everyone from China says, I got to get my currency out of China and I'll put it in New York real estate. The New York real estate goes it goes up, but that game is happening all around the world, and that massive easing. Ask this: so, if you didn't have 185 trillion dollars of additional easing, what would real estate look like? Right? What would if you didn't have? Wait, Jeff, what would it look like? It would look deflationary, just like everything else. If you didn't have this, if you didn't have, uh, if you didn't have this, and then your savings would be going up, and you would be able to buy more for that. Everything would look like that. You would follow the natural trend of what prices uh, wanted to do. 
it's not necessarily debt that's a negative. It's debt that can't be repaid. And then you changing the, the currency underlying to pretend you repaid it. That is a real crit critical thing. So if you actually have to repay that debt, then you're borrowing from the future. You're just pulling forward demand. And if you did that, then growth has to slow in the future because you have to pay back that debt with interest. And it's pulling, pulling future demand uh, from, uh, from today's demand. So it ha growth has to slow even more. So it's not necessarily the debt. Debt can be used. Debt is not a bad thing. It's debt that can't be repaid. And then, and then governments distorting capitalism to pretend they're repaying it, changing the currency value. Debt that can't be repaid. So when you look back to World War II debt, um, many people look back and say, hey, you know, we, that, was, that was a good investment. We actually grew out of that debt. We paid it off via growth. You look at what happened and you look at the percent of our national GDP in the States as it relates to financial services. After 1971, when we moved off the gold standard, it exploded. And when you look at debt leading up to 2007, 2008, so much of that debt was mortgage-backed secured. Basically, we get a loan for a higher-priced house, which isn't actually higher price, but there's so much money it goes higher. Who is the fairy godmother in the system that says, this debt is good, it's going to drive real growth and real incremental value to society versus this is bad debt, it's the financial services sector playing a game? Connect your to dots to, so you can see it. That's why I say the $4 to $1 of GDP growth. And it used to be $2, and it used to be $1, and it used to be... So at a certain point, debt is good. It's actually producing more, uh, uh, more. And then you have to pile way more debt to pretend you're getting growth, right? To, or to get growth, right? But it takes way more debt. And the fairy godmother just all of a sudden went, hey, just like a business, right? You could pretend we work. Looks like a really good business when it's valued at $45 billion. And everybody says, wow, this is great because more... It's a Ponzi scheme. More and more people racing in and more and more people ra racing in. And then you take that away and you see the real fundamentals. Right? Give a counter example to WeWork. Where has it been good debt over the past five years? Well, so go back a little further. Amazon borrowed a bunch of money to, to, to create real value in their business. Um, and that, and, and the future cash flows, it was a negative working capital model and the future, ca uh, future cash flows and the growth of creating that platform is easily pay, pay that back. But any single example that you, you take as you break, as you add more and more debt to, to get no real, look out at the future and say, can this debt be paid? You know, it's, you're already way past the point of rescue. And so, so your, your example with airlines or any of these others, which just all goes up to the federal government, which is it really from the taxpayer. Um, you, you look at the entire thing and it's just a house of cards. So let's shift another political question here. You know, Preston Pish, the investor podcast gave a great analogy and I know you're, you're in the same circles there. You guys probably have discussed this with him, but basically said, you know what, really what quantitative easing is, is it socialism at the top? Corporations yeah, yeah. get bailed out. But what's worse, what's worse is it's capitalism for the SMB. Let them go bankrupt. If they can't make the, if the restaurant can't make the rent payment, let them go bankrupt. And they try and do like PPE and UBI to just kind of support the bottom. But right now it's essentially capitalism at the top, socialism at the bottom. Is there a way to make that more even where for every dollar of quantitative easing, it's an additional dollar of UBI or something like that? Can there be a balance like that? 
I don't think so. Um, and I don't think so because, because what you, what, that is a hundred percent true. So right now, if, so if, if a, if a company cannot pay back the debt, it should go broke. And then people with money should recapitalize that, right? And, um, and, and create their wealth uh, going forward. If a government stop, stops that from happening, and, and, and it's politically friendly to do, or it, it gets worse and worse over time, but it's politically friendly to do because here's what that company does. I'm going to go broke. All these people are going to be on the street, right? And so the company is talking about jobs, right? And so the government says, I, those people can't be on the street. We're in trouble. So they, so they say, okay, here, we're going to, we're going to save you. But they, but it's socialism for the rich. It's absolutely socialism for the rich because the job that now the jobs will go down over time anyway, anyways, but those jobs would still be there. Like if you said that, uh, it, let's use the oil markets right now. Right. And, and, uh, there's a ton of private equity debt against the, uh, the against oil markets. You can clearly tell that those markets are debt. That debt is zero. It's it's it should be zero. The oil still stays in the ground. If it's going to be worthwhile, some it, it, it worth something down the road. It's not that the oil is forever zero. It's the company that took the debt is zero. And by pretending it's not zero today and giving them, okay, we're going to bail you out and create, solve, solve the debt with more debt. That sounds like a good idea, right? <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's a really bad idea. Um, so you, you save all of the executives that, that created essentially debt to create bad businesses or, or got hurt because of a, 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 a bad business. Um, and you, you stop capitalism from happening, that you should clear the system. That system should be cleared. New entrepreneurs should come in and take those, uh, take those assets and create their fortunes. But Jeff, in 2006, the U.S. paid $390 billion for crude oil. Because of the fracking boom, we paid just $78 billion in 2016, saving American taxpayers $312 billion. We need those fracking jobs. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of making my point, right? So those fracking jobs will be there no matter what. The oil doesn't, well, at negative $37 oil, um, they, then- I'm asking this facetiously, by the way. I want to give you, want to give you a chance to defend, yeah. Yeah, I, I know you are. Yeah, so the oil, if it's going to have value, entrepreneurs will rush in and create value out of that. It shouldn't take the government getting into that conversation to to uh, to protect previous entrepreneurs that made made mistakes period right and when you connect the dots to letting main street fail right the entrepreneur with a restaurant that fails and everything else and people saying yeah that should happen but it shouldn't here it's just illogical it's completely illogical <laughs> Let's stay on oil for a second because I want to get into solar because it has an, you did a beautiful job in the book of kind of correlating Moore's law to infrastructure, to oil, to energy, which are all important things. Let's, I'm going to do a hypothetical. These can be dangerous. So I'm going to do my best job to set this up appropriately. Uh, next week, we see a headline that says um, US government considering $100 billion bailout of fracking industry to save 3 million US fracking jobs. If you were leading, as part of Trump's cabinet, the new infrastructure plan, and you were advocating instead to use that hundred billion 
to incentivize the deployment of solar cells. How would you structure that in a way uh, that you believe would get the most or the largest percentage of the U.S. population kind of on your side and agreeing that's where $100 should be spent? Um, So the first point about technology where it's moving, if you accept that, um, and first I would have the debate about technology. I'd look everywhere and I'd say, is that true? Right. And everything I've done across, you see that you see it in the book, but I try to be balanced in my approach on, on, on all of this. That is true. Right. Technology is going to give more for less across your life. Right. And it's going to continue and it's going to get, it's going to accelerate that, um, that I can't see any, uh, any, uh, any flaw in what, what I'm talking there. And I will, gladly debate that with I'm at the front seat of it. So I see it happening everywhere. (laughs) Um, If that's true, then, then the only place to make investments is in the super highways of the future. Right? So before, before you would, if you wanted to get people back to work, you would get shovel ready projects, right? And you would, get people back to work on building roads and infrastructure as fast as you can. And, and, and by the way, U.S. needs some roads, infrastructure. That is still true. But the roads and infrastructure were an important part of the arteries of finance to connect dots, right, and to, and, and to make things happen faster. So if you built a bridge, if you built it, then, then you get it more, not just the initial GDP gain of, uh, of, uh, of building the bridge and everything else, but you're more efficient in your economy because people travel to work faster and everything else. That's historical. Now more efficiency comes from Zoom, right? It comes from owning the superhighways of the future, not of the past. And some of those superhighways are solar. Some of those superhighways are artificial intelligence. Some of the super is compute power, but it, they're, they're all technology related. I could see you in that cabinet debate pulling a line from your book. I'm quoting now here. Folks, listen, using solar only to generate all the world's electricity today, you need 496,000 square kilometers. In the U.S. alone, cabinet, Trump cabinet, oil and gas covers 104,000 square kilometers. Why not just rip the Band-Aid off and make this? I mean, you know, folks, why not just rip the Band-Aid off and make the switch? Let's incentivize solar, right? It's going to be painful. We're going to lose fracking jobs. But guess what? We'll be energy independent. That's good geopolitically, right? We'll have solar. Moore's Law will continue to bring the price of solar cheaper. Like, these are all good things. Why wouldn't people get on board with that? Um, you hope they will. Now, so just the, the transition, you, you know it in the book. And, and one of the things on, on podcasts you can't go as deep is, is, is some of the stuff in the book. And then there will be a whole bunch of people questioning, well, solar can't provide enough power today. And they're right. So the transition to solar is, uh, is, is really important because you're not going to just to tomorrow go from energy dependence on oil and coal and everything else to, to, to solar like that. But the transition, the people in front of the transition and the people that create the innovation in the transition will export that innovation around the world. Um, and so the best, um, where owning the future um, is, is the best, uh, it, 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 that transition is an important trans, uh, transition. That those investments of jobs, uh, those jobs, they don't just carry the, 
the tomorrow game, right? And they and get more people working. They they build an infrastructure that people around the world will use that in, in infrastructure. So the tech, some of the technology that's created in, in solar. Switching from solar and energy to technology, but still talking about the future. Many people, you just used the word owning the future. Many people are arguing, and there's two very different sides of this debate, that AI is going to play a massive component in, quote, owning the future. Uh, when you have companies like Google uh, that, work, that can use their ad business to subsidize massive gains elsewhere, choose to launch free products for consumers, and then use that data to help their AI machines course correct faster, is that a good or bad thing for society? Um, do I want AI owned by a, a corporation? Um, uh, probably not. Um, I would rather have AI general purpose or, or owned by a whole bunch of people. Um, do I want AI owned by a government? No, I, I, I don't. I would rather have the benefits widely distributed to society. Um, but the incentives around a company to create it are so massive that it makes sense for Google, it makes sense for Amazon, it makes sense for, um, it, it, so it, it, I don't think it's said it. I'm, I'm from Canada. Some of the top AI researchers uh, in the world are in, in Canada. And, and it's because the government incentives, um, when most, most governments were stepping out of AI research because they didn't believe in it, Canada's continued to, to invest in it. So some, uh, some of the top people around the world moved here and, and, but we haven't capitalized on the commercial value of AI. There, there is a sucking sound from all of our ta talent to the uh, to the the Amazons, the Googles, and everything else, because you can work on problems faster, right? It's around da data capture and everything else, and so the top researchers go to some of these companies because they can uh, they can solve problems faster, and that's because they, these companies understand network effects. How to capture data a lot faster. So that path, if you look at the amount of investment in AI, and you compare what's happening um, it, to these massive companies, and I include Alibaba and some of the Chinese companies in that set, I think it's over sixty percent of the dollars invested in AI are coming from the monopoly companies. So again, what is your, you know, for me, I'm actually, this is one of those things where I'm not trying to tee you up with a yes or no answer. I am actually trying to consume as much information here to understand where I personally lay on this. But you have, you know, folks like Elizabeth Warren saying these companies are too big, break them up. But the problem is the profits from how big they are, a lot of are sinking into these new things like AI. When you say you prefer to see AI owned and the power of that distributed from the masses, what is a plausible way where you could see that work? Well, that's the thing, and I and I I think it's hard to see plausibly that working right now, um, because because uh, because of the incentive structure for a company to win, right? And and so you could say you could have a benevolent kind of AI and say, but you don't have any incentive to create the data, you don't have any incentive to create the um, so so it's hard to see, and it's hard to see governments actually stop. Let's use a, an example from the book, if. If Elizabeth Warren or anybody breaks up Amazon or Google um, or the giant AI companies or, or Microsoft for that, that, uh, that matter, effectively by doing that, you cede AI superiority to China. Right? 
because uh, because the rate that this is moving so so i don't think that would be a really smart idea uh, either it's geopolitical and the whole huawei um, thing is a geopolitical thing around ai it's not uh, and 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 it's so important to kind of sovereign nation you're talking about data transfer over 5g and if huawei owns that we're cooked exactly and so, so I understand from from I understand the politician's response. I understand that how do I slow that down? Will I will I move forward here? Some of those conversations are probably the the most important from a geopolitical uh, landscape. So. China has used government power to centralize this, and then they're building amazing social mapping features, 200 million cameras across the country. They're building the muscle to process this data faster than a, you know what might rival Google or Amazon as private entities. There's another faction of people that would argue exactly what you're selling, which is a decentralized nature of this utility, works perfectly with blockchain technology and decentralized applications. Jack Dorsey has talked about making Twitter and turning it into a dApp. The problem in the question I keep wondering, I like that path a lot because it basically means every bit that you and I, every piece of data you and I as consumers commit to the AI machine, we earn a little bit more of the value of the system, the network effect. But... What capital provides the, like, what is the capital that provides incentive for anyone to build the machine to process the data we're inputting if you went the DAP route? That's, that, that's the problem. And even on the DAP route, we, we think about these as waves as far as technology. Remember when the internet was going to be the, um, the great equaler? Right, it would give everybody access, it would create um, diversity, it would hurt monopoly companies, right? By giving everyone access, that was kind of the promise, and 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 for a while that actually was true. A whole bunch of new Florida companies, and whole, but it actually just concentrated power faster, right? Because of the network effect, and so you go through these waves. You you break things up, and then you, then it goes and consolidates. But that's actually from a human condition. We can't handle as much choice, right? You go to Google, and it handles the choice for you. Right. So it indexes 130 trillion uh, sites. You don't go to page 572. Even though the content is actually there, you never go to page 572. Unless you are one bored individual. Because <laughs> you don't have the time. <laughs> and so what, the, what, what, what these gating mechanisms, monopolies really do, they solve that choice for you through AI. And you go to the first page, and you trust their uh, you, you trust their search, uh, uh, search. So even if you now break it back apart, somebody's going to sit on top and consolidate it back. So just wrapping up our conversation on AI, um, I, I haven't heard a. I think this is what sh- I mean. You've said what you think should happen, but you've said the problem is that who's going to spend the money to build the infrastructure to process all the data input? Are you leaving? Is that the extent of your thought process right now? Do you have a solution there? Like, what's your best solution? It, it's, so, so these solution, so a solution there. I don't have off the top of my head what does AI look like, and it's because there's such thorny problems, right? AI, the rate of AI progress. Um, it's it's moving so fast that it's that our intelligence, my intelligence against AI, against AI, I'm going to lose the battle, right? The the most intelligent uh, most intelligent intelligent of us 
have always read more, consumed more, learned more, curiosity, everything else. I read 50 books a year and, and have since I was 20, year, 20 years old. You can't read enough to, have, to, to, to move as fast as AI is, move, is moving. It's just we, we don't have enough energy, right? We don't have, for us to retain that, uh, that we're, uh, we, we stop retaining, right? We stop, we can connect these patterns, we have to practice more and more to become really great at anything. And, and you see this happening in AI at a, at a speed that is blinding, right? That, that, that first AI beats chess, then it beats go, then it beats, the, then it's going to drive a car. Which go, by the way, is significantly more complex in terms of permutations than chess. Exactly. Right. Significant, like, uh, significantly more uh, the in fact top top ai researchers didn't think go would be solved for another five years and then then ai blows it away and then the same ai that beat go um is created without knowing the game and, and so with all the researchers then the new ai beats that ai uh, the, the first ai and kill and, and, and kills it. The rate of this progress, and it, it leads to a logical conclusion of if every single job is a function of our intelligence, and AI is going to be more intelligent than us, where do all the jobs come from? Do we need jobs in the future? Well, that's kind of what I uh, propose. Uh, the the if you let deflation happen and 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 let the natural order of things ha- happen. You'd need far less of them. You'd you'd work less. You would uh, uh, the you would follow the trend, and you'd be less less work less work along the uh, along the trend. And and I don't see why that would be a good or a bad thing. I don't see why why people are fighting that so badly, right? Because if you, if you just follow the trend of technology, we would have more time. Right? We would get more for less, more for less, more for less, as as the natural order of things was permitted. Um, but that butts up against the existing way we've wired the world. So if you fast forward, you or I are president, well, maybe me because you're a Canadian citizen. <laughs> Let's say I'm president. I'm giving the State of the Union in 2036. Almost all State of the Unions throughout history, you know, they start off something like this. You know, our economy is growing. We're doing very healthy. Unemployment is, you know, continues to shrink. We're now at you know, 3% unemployment rate. Does that, does that State of the Union in 2036 sound something more like the following? Folks, gas is now 90 cents a gallon. So many of you have been able to work less. You're now on two-day work weeks. You have more free time and you're making less, but you can now afford to go on more vacations because you can afford more gas. And airline tickets are cheaper. And going out night to eat used to cost, you know, you know, $100 an hour for a family of five. Now it's $50 for an hour. Is that what the State of the Union sounds like in 2036? I... Uh, I think it would be better than that, but I think you should run for president. <laughs> yeah. My point is, how do you sell purchasing power? It's, purchasing power is a hard, a $1,200 stimulus check is easy to see. To sell purchasing power gains to the American public is harder to explain. Do you know, do you know the marshmallow experiment, marshmallow test? Four-year-old marshmallow test. Oh, yes, but the... <laughs> but, 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 back to everyone. Yeah. Uh, so at four years old, you can predict the, the, the success of kids into the, into the future out of, out of leaving them or giving a researcher comes in and says, uh, 
here's a marshmallow. If you don't eat it by the time I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. The kids eat, eat the marshmallow. Um, if you pr- project them for, uh, for forward, um, don't do as well as the people who uh, who, who uh, delay their gratification and don't eat the marshmallow. Um, and what you just t- talked about is it's really easy to eat the marshmallow, right? It's so it's most entre- most successful entrepreneurs, most successful investors um, are, are, can delay the current gratification because they see a future that is better. So they get two in the future or they get more in the future by, by, by taking pain today. That's a hard thing to convince politicians to do. It's a hard thing to convince people to do because they want what's right now. We're on four year election cycles. Yeah. And, 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 and so it, it might be political suicide to say what I'm saying, right? It might be, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it not true. And, and, and that's the thing, at some point, uh, at some point, people are going to rise up and realize that, uh, this case. And, it's, and, and it, they're going to do it through a disorderly unwind where new leaders are going to be elected. And, and, and I hope it's not that. Right? Even, even in Bitcoin, right? So a lot of people on Bitcoin, and I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin, a huge fan of Bitcoin, because I think that it'll move to a reserve status um, that other currencies will be pegged to eventually. When? What year do you think that happens? Uh, um, I think it could happen faster than people are uh, projecting. I think I, I think because uh, what's happening right now... Give me a range. Is it five years, 10 years, 20 years? Faster than that. Faster than five years? Yeah. Wow. Um, because once it starts it'll accelerate and, and that network effect will drive it super fast. Now it's the same, uh, but so Bitcoin versus gold, right? It, it's not that gold, like why is gold valuable? Right. It, and it's because it used to be tied to money pre, as you said, pre 71, it used to be tied to money. And so you have, uh, what eight and a half trillion dollar market cap, something like, uh, something like that on gold. Um, because not because of jewelry, because it used to be tied uh, to money and people think it might be tied to money again. Right. So it's a, it's a hedge against, uh, against eroding currency values. And that's why it's going up again. And it probably will go up higher from here, from here. But if you look at Bitcoin at $120 billion market cap, I think it looks more like the future of money. Like, I think it's the, 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 I, I can't imagine central governments saying, okay, let's go back to the gold reserve. But I can imagine them saying, okay, what do we peg to that is a foundation of trust? And I think that might look uh, more like Bitcoin. And if one does, or if one starts accumulating behind the scenes, they all have to. It moves really, it starts to, it starts to move really fast. Curious if you put kind of money where your mouth is. Preston shocked me with his answer on this. I want to ask you though, when you, we'll talk in percentages, obviously we don't give up information about your net worth, obviously, but when you look at your personal kind of exposure, you have kind of US equities, you have assets, you have anything related to fiat, then you have kind of these, you know, gold, then you have, you know, Bitcoin and things like that. What percent of your personal kind of net worth pie would you say is, is exposed to Bitcoin? 10%. Interesting. And, and, and I read, this isn't coming from me, but I read this and I, I thought it was, it was really profound. You build wealth by concentration, concentration of risk, right? You also could lose it all. 
but you protect uh, wealth by diversification. So if, if, if it was, if I wanted to have higher risk, so, and that's what an entrepreneur does, right? So all of a sudden, all of their business is in one thing. And if, they were, if they're right, they build a massive wealth. So concentration and then diversification to, to uh, protect it. So if it was, if I was in a different spot in life that I needed to build a bunch of wealth, I would make a way bigger bet on Bitcoin you would have actually potentially 100% concentration uh, in Bitcoin. Maybe not 100%, but I would have a way, a way bigger bet than 10%. And by the way, when you're talking bet, you're not, I'm not talking speculate when it's go from 7,500 up to 8,500. I'm talking actually building n- network infrastructure around enabling blockchain and Bitcoin to, to grow. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would. If you know that the currencies are going to be devalued, right, then then you could either bet on a whole bunch of companies. You could try to pick the winners of the currencies that are going to be devalued in different markets, whatever that devaluation. The ones the government will save. And, and um, or, or say, let's say I would bet on Amazon today because it experiences a network effect. It takes, it takes care of a digital trend, right? That's accelerating across and they have a whole bunch of uh, uh, opportunity to keep going probably faster now. I would bet on Microsoft today. I would bet on some of the big parent. But even making that bet, I know I'm betting on them in a currency that is the currency is going to be destroyed at some point. Right? So the currency value, so the thing I've made the bet on is going to be destroyed. <laughs> it sits on top of a currency that at some point it'll be destroyed. Um, and and so, so that's that's a hard bet to make long term if you know it. like would you bet on uh would you uh would you bet on um a currency in in africa or or uh or venezuelan currency or a company there right because it was a great company and the currency gets destroyed right you get destroyed anyways so that's kind of the, the point at some point if the current if the currencies blow up which i suspect at some point they're going to blow up um, then, then some of the companies they'll do well in that currency, but they, but uh, but they get hurt, hurt. And Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a hedge against that. So if the currencies get destroyed, then Bitcoin probably is a winner against that. And so the audience is naturally thinking, Jeff, enlighten us. When does the destruction happen? Lindsey Graham just this morning. This is some interesting stuff saying we should potentially default the U.S. government on the trillion dollars of debt that China holds of U.S. treasuries. Is that what destruction look like? Is I mean, is that the bomb? Yeah, so that's one, that's one of the, because, but, but already that's happening, right? So that's what, uh, all over the world, global trade has really, has really been a mugs game around so once you're every every country has its own currency that's devaluing to try to get higher jobs, and every currency is doing the same thing, you can't underlie you can't have trust in global trade anymore, because let's just take it's simple if you see it as as as, as an example you and I right uh, you you loan me a whole bunch of money we're trading. Right. I'm in Canada, you're in the US, you loan me a whole bunch of money and, and you're buying my goods and everything, or sorry, um, I'm loaning you money, you're buying my, buying my goods. And then 
at some point you say, I'm not going to pay you back the loan um, or like what Lindsey Graham just said, right? Am I going to trust that trade relationship uh, anymore? Or am I going to trust your currency anymore? No, I wouldn't. Or the opposite, or I'm going to change the value of the underlying currency and pretend to pay you back, but I'm going to pay you back in, in, in worthless pieces of paper, right? On both, on both of those things, the framework of trade and the framework of, uh, of trust and uh, trust and services back and forth between you and me or anyway, just keeps breaking, breaking down. That's where we are in this cycle. Mm-hmm. Not much governments can do about it. So if you argue, I mean, I really see three options, a new Bretton Woods, hopefully the U S dollar ends up winning and it's not like the, you know, some other currency cause we have a lot of power because of, I'm talking, we obviously as Americans, right but you guys are close to, right? Uh, new global reserve. Some would argue, and it's a stretch SDR monetary fund. It's a basket of currencies essentially. And then the other one is, you know, we've talked about it, digital, digital currencies. Um, which of those three options over the next 10 years do you think gains the most traction? So, um, that's why I don't believe in any of those options actually works. Okay. Um, and and because governments are uh, unlikely to uh, trust each other in this current environment to be able to to create that to so negotiate I, a new Bretton Woods, a new Bretton Woods, and that new Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold in in Bretton Woods, right? And when everybody understands the rules, everybody wins, right? More uh, game theory predicts better outcomes for everybody. But if you fast forward kind of to where we are today, do you think that that, do you think in governments around the world could come together and actually have that discussion and what would they peg it to? Right. The kind of the, that's, that's, that's the point. Uh, I think in that, that world, I want that to happen because that would be the only way we could actually have a non disorderly transition and peg it to what a digital currency I, I think it would be pegged to a digital i think it would be pegged to bitcoin i think that's what uh, i think that's the more most logical thing right now and every government will say no peg it to my digital currency but it doesn't but but whether it's a digital or a piece of paper if you can manipulate the rules on that piece of paper or digital currency then nobody's going to want to peg it to to anyone else's currency Exactly. So there's no incentive to, to make that new Bretton Woods instead of being tied to gold, tied to Bitcoin. There's no incentive to actually make that happen. Yeah. And then, and so the disorderly uh, uh, unwind and think about the, so even for, and this is what I was saying with Bitcoin holders, as much as I believe in it, I don't want it to happen as fast as, as, as it like, likely it's happening because it means the world goes through a disorderly unwind. Um, and and that doesn't look good for even people with Bitcoin. Paint that picture for us. Well, well, if currencies, think about what what happens when currencies explode in a in because the U.S. hasn't seen it, right? It's hard to see, but you could but look at it in, in in Germany before Hitler, right? Look at the Weimar Republic. Essentially, that um, currency becomes use worthless, and you have wheelbarrows full of currency um, to try to buy bread. Um, and you have people starving and you have people and politicians in those environments rise up and they blame others, right? That's what ends up happening in a, um, and so 
a whole lot of people would go hungry and jobless and it would just recite and and yes there'd be wealth created in in people with bitcoin or protection of wealth uh, in bitcoin but but against that magnitude of damage in, in a society it it it's, it wouldn't be a good that's not a that's not a utopian future it would be a it would be a, it would be a dislocating for society so a couple more minutes here i want to pull that thread for a second world war one to make sure germany stayed kind of knocked down there was obviously a massive agreement treaty of versailles and a massive amount of war reparations that germany owed and there are many people ex-commanders some influential some writers you know that would be like the equivalent of today like a big blog site that were really upset that germany gave in instead of fighting to the last breath and accepted that consequence. Ultimately, they try to get out of that by printing way too much money to pay the reparations and you can't pay that much debt. So then Hitler rises and populism happens. The step, there's one step that you're m- missing there. So that happened through the 20s right? mm-hmm. and it happened with the uh, with US and everything uh, and, and around the globe giving loans to Germany. Okay. So that they could, uh, uh, so Hitler was rising through the 20s Right through the twenties, and he actually went to jail uh, uh, in the, in that time, and he actually became kind of less relevant in the twenties because the economy grew again. Mm-hmm. The economy grew again because the U.S. and and other nations um, put debt in to be able to to create that. In the thirties, in the early thirties, U.S. had called their loans right because U.S. is experiencing pain, and and Germany couldn't pay the loans. And, and so the only way to pay them was to, to print money uh, like it's going out of style, right? And then paying back. The, remember the conversation you and I had about you and I trading? So print money and pretend to pay back in a different inflated current currency. But the co- the, that, that killed their economy. Asset owners won, right? Everybody else got killed. The asset owners, just, I don't want to say, but think about who the asset owners were in society and think about the politicians that came in and said, it's not your fault. It's those people's fault that took your money, right? And, and, and those people then are persecuted, right? And, and when, when you, once you've done that job, you need to create a bigger enemy, that's that's why that's why that's why war revolution is a logical consequence out of where we are right now because because people don't believe it's their fault they, people don't they're caught in a system and it's really easy to prey on on people's vulnerabilities when they can't eat and create an enemy um, out of somebody else. Populism and you argue this in the book explodes because of an unjust system. The problem is, is the definition of unjust can be manufactured. Fear is profitable because it's free to create. I'm not, um, I don't know if, you know, current governments know they're doing this on purpose, but let's assume they did. Let's assume that they knew if they print more money, it creates a larger gap between have and have nots. And like Art of War, when we read it, divide and conquer is a real strategy and it can work. They know by printing money, they can continue to divide and conquer. Why would they ever stop or give up that power? So, so that's why revolutions happen because when, when, when you do that for long enough, 
smaller and smaller people are at the top, way more people on the bottom of the pyramid and the bottom of the period say, pyramid say, I'm taking it back. That's, what does that look like though? It, 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 pitchforks in the street. Literally. Except for not pitchforks. The U.S. gun sales are through at all-time records in the U.S. and Canada and around the world. Um, it's... I, I hate talking about this. I wrote the book so that, like, and, and think about when I wrote the book. Right? Which was what year? I wrote it through uh, 2018, end of 2018, 19. So okay. released in January of this year. But but it predicts all of these events and it predicts the next ones too, right? Um, I, I wrote it to, that we, we could see, hopefully we, we, smarter minds could prevail we could talk about the first principles and say, and, and say, if this has created a structural change in society, it's a structural change like the blockbuster Netflix example I gave. Um, and and putting candy aisles in the stock and the shop won't fix it. It's uh, so so. Let's talk about how we create a, a better, more more fair society going forward, and that looks very different than what's happening today. I don't remember the name of this off the top of my head, but there were a bunch of people that camped out after the banks were bailed out in 2008 in New York. Uh, what was that for like weeks and weeks? Do you remember what that group was called? <sighs> Everyone knows what we're talking about though. Yeah. But so he, here's what's interesting, right? Democratic president, uh, you know, today, if something like that happened, you would immediately launch something like UBI to tell those people in tents outside, you know, protesting the bank bailout, we're going to give you 1200 bucks this month. Like go away, stay happy. Don't question what we're doing. This government is a little ahead of, and they probably know that. So they've been able to keep control of the masses that might revolt with pitchforks by introducing things like here's a little carrot, you know, take a little check this month. Isn't that a great hedge? I mean, when, when does that balance stop working? So when, so at what rate? So just let's take the, structural things that you just said. So I'm going to bail out a whole bunch of companies that should fail, right? I'm going to do that. And, and, and at that level, it's a staggering amount of capital that's going, we both know how much capital it's going to take to create. To tens, tens of trillions. Tens of trillions of dollars. Globally more. Right? Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, Hundreds uh, of trillions globally. So, uh, so, but in the US, tens of trillions of dollars to prevent that from happening, to prevent them from uh, failing. And to artificially keep their prices high, their stock prices high, their 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 prices artificially keep the commercial real estate on them high and everything else too, and then at the same time, because I've kept them artificially high, I have to take extra money, and I have to give it to a whole bunch of other people to pretend to, so that they can pay for all these high prices, right? At some point. Like the system just like it's just such a colossal waste of money on both on both uh, both fronts, um, and you can't you can't keep doing that. I, that. Yeah. I, I'd love I'd love for somebody to explain to me why that's a good idea, instead of arguing why uh, the the other point on why don't we let nature take its course and deflation. I would love to I'd love for somebody to say why what we're doing is a good idea. So. But but you're but you're doing this right right now. Preston is doing this. There's a whole bunch of really um, really smart people having this conversation and drive and, and driving this conversation to way more people who are starting to ask ask really logical questions. 
Yep. I mean, look, I'm trying, but ultimately where I lose confidence in change happening is ultimately in the U.S., the election cycle is four years. You can print and print money to get even reelected for a second term, the second four years, give out UBI, like that pattern you just articulated where prices keep increasing so much, you can't write enough UBI checks to keep up for consumers paying for a bottle of Coke and it gets, that will last longer than eight years. So you're passing the problem on to the next president. And if you can pass the buck, you're not incentivized to the politically uncomfortable thing today of let deflation occur, let less people have jobs and let prices go down. All true. Yeah. There's no good answer. There, there is no good answer. Uh, the, uh, and that, but, but you hope that this conversation starts to permeate a whole bunch of people, better questions are asked. And through those better questions, you're electing different leaders um, uh, 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 through, through that because we might as well face it. Uh, it's, a re- it's a reality and papering over that reality, it just makes it worse. Guys, that is the price of tomorrow. Jeff Booth, why technology is a key, the key to an abundant future. Coming from a guy that didn't, isn't just writing about it, actually built a company called Build Direct uh, over the past 19 years, half billion dollar market cap, grew it nicely. Now trying to get this message out for his kids, ultimately to prevent a very nasty, probably very bloody uh, revolt. We hope the good things happen. Jeff, if people want to follow you more, where can they find you? On Twitter, uh, at Jeff Booth. Guys, and all of you watching on YouTube, I will be in the comments after this. Uh, I'll tag Jeff if one is directed at him so we can get in there and keep this conversation alive. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. There you have it with Jeff Booth, author of The Price of Tomorrow. I kept asking him for what the solution is, and he just said, Nathan, again, you guys heard us talking. We couldn't come up with a solution. If you guys have one, please put it in the comments. We are watching. We are reading. We are trying to figure out when this debt All this money being printed, when does it bite us all in the butt? And when does something like Bitcoin or the SDR or something else take over uh, to build trust back in the economic system? Or when does the revolt happen? We really obviously want to prevent that. Guys, I appreciate you. I hope you're enjoying these longer form interviews I'm doing. Thanks.